we had the Normans come in and I found my mum found out we're related to um William the Conqueror. So Really? Yeah, she's real nut for um family history and once you get into the one royal family somewhere, it pretty much just goes brrr, yeah, like, all the way back. Yeah. And so we had him come through with a was it a French kind of French language? Was it a Norman French language yeah, that came in? Like it, I think it's people re- sort of refer to Anglo-Norman as the kind of blending of the two, but I think it's like the actual any situations where they actually blend blended is quite marginal. I think most people just spoke English and slowly French vocabulary started kind of diffusing downwards, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah, because we've got obviously French. I mean, English is something like seventy percent French vo- vocab now, but it has a German under understructure, and the most frequent yeah. words tend to stay. They're all Germanic. I yeah. think the first two hundred. Yeah. So we had that happen, and then I think it just became modern English throughout the what the fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds is when it's yeah. they had the great vowel shift and it changed. Yeah, but that was sort of the fourteen fifteen hundreds. Yeah. The stuff I was really interested in getting you to chat about was. What would life have been like during, say, Danelaw, where we had all of these Norsemen coming over, repeatedly immigrating to Great Britain? What would have been the cultural setup with different languages and how would that have blended to make um, Middle English? That's a, really, that's a really interesting one. That's actually something I've looked a fair bit at because of the, the northern kind of dialect that my grandparents speak I, I've kind of got in, interested in that kind of Danelaw thing through that um and sort of north and eastern England thing and I think I personally think that in say the probably the 900s there would have been a lot of bilingualism about because I think the only way you can get so for instance in, in standard English there are a huge amount of old Norse loan words in the core vocabulary where there aren't many French loan words as you say and the most common words are mostly old English but then also Old Norse, so words like egg and skull and skirt and things like that are all Old Norse loanwords. And in Northern dialects, you find um, more Old Norse loanwords. You find a huge proportion of core vocabulary is Old Norse, and there have been very uh, various um, analyses, most of them done sort of in the late 1800s, trying to work out if there's any kind of pattern. So, for example, if Old Norse words were used for agricultural things or if old Norse words were used for landscape things stuff like that I, I i can't remember exactly what what they found but i think to have that level of diffusion of old Norse vocabulary into the core vocabulary of people you you really need like widespread bilingualism like not not necessarily everyone was bilingual but people were sort of marrying into families that that spoke the other language and things like that because you have even prepositions in the north of England and in the east of England in Middle English, but not so much in early modern English, you have prepositions like till, which which is like the Scandinavian preposition meaning to, as in to go to somewhere. You have the preposition, you have the infinitive marker at, which which is is it's been reduced in a lot of Scandinavian languages. I think in Icelandic is now ad, but it's like the infinitive marker. So it's equivalent to of two, yeah. Yeah, but there's, I mean, they're both kind of the equivalent of two in different circumstances. But you have you have those words in some northern English dialects into the into the twentieth century, and oh, you wow. have them in, in like um, in writing well throughout the Middle English period and throughout the early modern English period. And to have that level of inclusion of of that kind of vocabulary, I think you would have had to have had families that were bilingual, families that were teaching their children both languages. Um, 
Well, that's what you would expect, right? That would be the most natural thing. You, you, it it yeah, seems yeah. like it's a, it's sort of the null hypothesis, if you were to go about it scientific, scientifically, would yeah. be you would have two different groups here. If they're mixing and they're living in the same areas, you would imagine there's going to be some level of bilingualism. It would be... Yeah, I mean, it probably yeah. makes more, more sense for the null hypothesis to really be there's no difference and they both keep separate. But you would imagine that's <laughs> well, the more sensical thing, right? More, yeah, absolutely. Like, there, there are people who think that there wasn't actually much actual... Scandinavian presence and that it was mostly just landowners and things like that but I think it, I think there must have been I mean there's genetic evidence I think there was quite widespread Scandinavian actual presence of of people like immigrants um I think there's some evidence that the animal husbandry practices changed after the Scandinavians arrived so there were more pigs there was more fishing there were, there were more waterfowl and things like that poultry in general um that's interesting that there's a big cultural push as well then, which may have um, ramifications yeah. of to, to, to the language itself as well and how it's used. Yeah, yeah. Like I... What was I going to say? That there's, it's weird because there's not really, aside from sites where Scandinavian sort of armies and things camped, there isn't much... It's it's quite hard to differentiate Anglo-Scandinavian people, like ordinary people, from Anglo-Saxons in the archaeological record. Even though there must have been lots of people who spoke Old Norse, the the archaeology identifying them as Scandinavian pretty much disappears within one or two generations. So there are very few sites that are very clearly these are just Scandinavian people who live in England. <laughs> I always find that no, funny with our mo- movies, right? Where you watch the movies and TV shows about Vikings and they're always like, how do you know which ones are which? Oh, the Vikings are the ones with chainmail and leather and the, yeah. the helmets and yeah. the, the Anglo-Saxons are the boring looking ones or something. And you're like... <laughs> yeah, they're always I, the boring looking ones. <laughs> I have a feeling they would have all looked the same. Like, <laughs> maybe yeah, coloured. Like within, I mean, I suppose in terms of like things like hairstyles, I think there's some evidence, literary evidence, that, that um, there was there were sort of typically Scandinavian hairstyles that were worn by royals and things like that that were that were sort of recognized as Scandinavian influence. But those things don't really preserve in archaeology. So things like Scandinavian motifs on um, on tools and things, you don't really get that in the archaeology because once a tool wears out, you, you just get a new one from whoever makes them nearby. And those people are, you know... And I, I think that's more evidence for the kind of the quite rapid diffusion of Scandinavian communities into, into the wider Anglo-Saxon community rather than the isolate, sort of isolated Scandinavian communities. And I think even from a practical point of view, like <coughs> particularly upland, upland places like the Yorkshire Dales and, and, and the Lake District and places like that, nowadays land management and agricultural management in those places is a very like it's a very locally managed thing and from place name evidence you can you know you can sort of tell that scandinavian communities or other places named in a scandinavian way were very very close to places named in old english so there was clearly you know they would have had to have some level of corp uh, corporation well, if they're farmers, right? You can imagine they're going to be trading yeah. with one another. Yeah, they're probably going to be marrying one another. They're going to be raising children, yeah. you know, speak different languages, have friends in different languages, etc. Yeah, yeah. But w- what was the main difference for 
the adoption of a great deal of um, Norse language, but not in terms of Celtic language, because I think you covered that in one of your That's videos. That one, yeah. Like the, the lack of inclusion of Celtic. It's I, I've always considered doing a video on it, but Langfocus did a, a, a decent video on it um, quite a while ago. But it's <clears throat> it's like there's clearly from genetic evidence tells us that there, there was clearly it wasn't just a population replacement when the Anglo-Saxons arrived. Yeah. So why why is there so little Celtic influence on English? Like there are very very few loan words from Celtic languages into English, even in sort of fringe dialects like you know dialects in sort of Scotland and Northern England that you would expect to have a load of Celtic vocabulary because that's where Celtic populations were sort of interacting with English speaking populations the longest, but they don't. And it's, I don't know why, like there are, there are certain grammatical constructions that people have linked to maybe Celtic substrate kind of influence. So a load of Celtic language speakers learning old English and then them kind of, Take the grammar that they know in one language, which is what I would do in Portuguese. If I'm unsure, I'm just yeah. going to use English grammar and then see, does that work? See if it works, yeah. And if, if entire communities are doing that, of course, then it just def- it, it becomes the standard. Yeah. So, but, but then those constructions tend to appear quite late on in writing. And some people, so like 1500s, 1600s, when really by all rights, there should be no one speaking as far as we know, there should be no one speaking Britonic anymore anywhere yeah. apart from like France. Right? Speakers. Yeah. 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 That's <coughs> it's crazy. Cause I think I looked up some of these words. I think we've got Scottish Gaelic can, which is why we call the place cans up in the North of Australia. Right. It's like a, oh, right, okay. a burn. I think you would say to a burns, probably a word that we get from them where it's like a yeah. kind of like a sand dune or a hill. Right. And then trousers, yeah. claymore, bog, galore, shindig, slogan, Spunk, whiskey, and then Irish yeah. Gaelic ones like banshee, gob, as in mouth, and then hooligan yeah. and limerick and leprechaun, slew, slob, and smithereens. I was like, yeah. oh, okay, so I we like, do have I some. Like but, um, yeah, there's, there's like a smattering, but it's not generally the words you'd use. It's, it's a really weird collection of words because it's like, mm-hmm. it's not prestige words, like it's not words to do with royalty or government or anything like that, but it's it's not words that I would use a lot, but uh, I don't know. Like they, they seem them. like all vocabulary <laughs> words. Yeah. Like they seem like words you'd use on an everyday, everyday basis, but they're just not, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to characterize them really. Well, and then the, we had, so the invasion of William the Conqueror in 1066, where he's brought over, um, I guess it's sort of an archaic version of French today. And mm. that's where we get, the majority i would imagine of our french loan words especially the ones that are spelt yeah. spelt differently but you're like uh, like um what's it what's yeah, a good example yeah. probably as opposed to the french probablement you know yeah, that yeah. it's spelt differently so i can see okay and like any of those words like confiscate in in french is probably something like confisque or something like where it's they've yeah, added a yeah. t to the end or, or removed it but um, so yeah. what happened then once William the Conqueror came over? How did that affect English and how did the French enter English? Because it was a different process, right? Because all of a sudden you had the upper class with that language as opposed to the lower or middle class farmers that were the Scandinavian speakers blending the languages together. Yeah, I think I, I don't know much about the exact process that it happened, but I could, I could only guess that it was sort of, you know, successive successively lower kind of class people 
picking up the language, picking up the French because they wanted to sort of, you know, emulate the rich. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, yeah. I think we got it for things like the church, uh, government, law, royalty, food. And that's why in English we have, um, you beef have and what, yeah, beef and, and, and cows. Yeah. You'll have different words for the, the animals, but the meat's a different word. It's a French word because it tended yeah. to be, yeah. that was how the royalty or the rich people interacted with those animals. It was, they were dead and on the plate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that, that's part of the, the thing that people... I think I said that that people were trying to analyze the Scandinavian element in certain dialects and whether it was land use or whether it was and I think that that was based on the idea that that the the French loanwords that we have tend to be to do with certain aspects of life so as you say like eating meat or government or royalty or you know things like that although of course there are French words in the core vocabulary like people is a, I think people is a French word um or a French derived word I could be wrong, actually. But I, I, think I think it is. You would say purple, but you would say it for people as in a people. And you would right. say for the, ab- okay. for like, hey, people, it would be Jean, I think, more so oh, than okay. purple. Purple would be like the group of people. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that's that's the only French loan word I'm aware of that's like, that's extremely everyday. But no, there's bound to be more than that. But yeah, no, I, I assume it was just like diffusion from the upper classes to the lower classes. And, and then so, after that, just, sorry. No, you get, well, I was going to say, what's the next step then to get to modern, modern English? So we've come through where the French came in and we had 500 or so years of um, middle English. And then it's, we have what the sort of great vowel shift is the marker right. where yeah. we suddenly get into um, modern English. And that's sort of the, is that where Shakespeare was writing right at that? Was he speaking middle English yeah. or modern English? modern english like yeah okay so it's just afterwards is it just after the great vowel shift yeah yeah and the great vowel shift probably happened well it, it definitely happened in different ways in different places so there, there was a different kind of great vowel shift in the south than in the north of england and then at, at the point shakespeare was writing i think you could probably take a sort of west country dialect from 100 years ago and compare it with if you if you had a recording of someone speaking in the early 1600s, you'd probably it'd be a be a toss up. Like they'd be so they'd be so not similar, but one wouldn't be obviously older than the other than the other. Like I think beyond that point, it's just a kind of diversification into the English dialects we have today, and it's not there's not much kind of linear progression as as much as there is diversification after that point from our perspective. I mean, there's always been diversification, but from our perspective in writing, because we've only really seen the sort of formal standard, it's been more of a linear progression. But at that point, it's just like, I mean, that's that's kind of the point that American English starts to split off. And then, of course, later on, like late 1700s, early 1800s, you have Australian English yeah. splitting off, which is in- interesting because like there are some recordings <coughs> of people speaking their regional dialects from, I think, the 1910s, which are, I, I could send you some of. To, to link in the description or something if you wanted and that like i listened to ones from sort of the the um there were none from i couldn't find any from london there probably were some from london but the ones from the s- southeastern coast of england like sort of essex and norfolk area they sounded remarkably australian to me yeah. like yeah. in terms of vowel qualities and things like that and i think um i think like early early 
not linguists, but early people writing on the dialects of Australia in sort of the 1820s, 1830s, actually commented that they'd started to diversify by that point. They'd started to diverge from British English, but they had a clearly significant London element. So I think... Well, that was, that's an, it's an interesting story. A really good book that's worth getting that you might like is um, the story of Australian English. I don't know if you've seen that one. He talks about how it got here. So, you know, you have the middle slash upper class um, gentry who are the ones bringing the convicts out here, you know, the people like Arthur Phillip, who was the the first governor of, of New South Wales and um, all of his soldiers, but then the majority of them tend to be obviously convicts, most of which I believe were Cockney. So they were from Southeast England around London yeah. and those areas, Devon yeah. and everything else. And they were the lower, lower class. So they would have um, had certain, the Cockney English that they spoke as well as flash language that they talk about, which is the sort of thieves language, all the slang that they use yeah. that was yeah. related to stealing and, and, you know, the underworld effectively that they brought over. And then you also have, you know, a whole bunch of Irish, a whole bunch of Americans. And I think you even had 12, yeah. 12 African descent um, convicts that were brought over. And so there's this huge mix. And yeah. yeah, I was looking into it and just thinking, you know, how amazing must it have been the first generation of, of quote unquote Australians, at least um, European yeah. Australians that got here yeah. and watching them develop their own dialect of English because you literally have, yeah. you know, a, a a small population of, I think, about 2,000 people in a very small area and they all speak with different accents, or at least all the adults that were brought yes, there later yeah. in life and the kids have to kind of work out where all the next generation... Well, we're all born. We're all, you know, like, and you know what kids are like at schools, right? You end up with your own slang words, your own jokes. Everyone's... Yeah. The in-group is usually the children. They don't... They blend with their parents a little bit and they get a bit of... Um, influence, I would imagine, language-wise, but I would say that the, the the majority of the way in which I speak is probably a result of my peer group at school, Same. at university, yeah. than it is yeah. my parents per se. And so, imagine how much that first generation, especially, would have really changed. Yeah, it must. Like, I think that's the the thing is because it really surprised me to read the the thing about um, the thing about people noticing by the 1820s that they had already started to be a divergent but it makes sense because a lot of, a lot of the time where you get linguistic a lot of linguistic diversity that happens because there are people of so many different language varieties meeting each other yeah. i think multicultural london english is a good example of a similar thing where people from lots of different speech communities meet and among the young younger generation who sort of all go to school together and mix together yeah. you, you get yeah. this, this dialect produced where you can't even tell what comes from where like you can't tell which bit comes from which which original language variety but that there are there's clearly influence from all of them and I, I imagine it being something like that like the dialect you know two or three generations down the line must have been something very very interesting well, the thing that I found interesting is that I think there's a linguistic process called leveling where all the extremes of the different dialects and languages get um, sort of pushed out and they, they disappear and they kind of converge on a sort of center around which, you know, it's, it's just the most common sounds, I guess you would have, you know, like if you have one Scottish person and, and the other hundred are from some obscure town in England, you would imagine that their children yeah, are not going to sound like Scots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the but, same thing happened in 
old English, like when all the continental dialects came over, there seems to have been a leveling and then the, the dialects diversified from there. But what, what were you saying? Sorry. Well, it, the interesting thing, I think, with the with Australia and the, the dialect and how it developed is that you would have had all these people in very, very small colonies, at least in the first 50 years or so, and yet you would have had a constant stream of new people coming in almost on a yearly mm. basis. Yeah. And so they, I think that's why you'll have this interesting... Um, outsider perspective on Australia in, in history because you'll have all these British people coming over, whether they're convicts themselves or they're, um, you know, landowners and free settlers that are educated and were writing diaries and stuff that could note yeah. on, holy crap, you know, my we, we were out here 20 years ago or something yeah. and it was completely different or I we were told that it was yeah. something different. Yeah, and that must have been changing yeah. so quickly. But the yeah. Yeah. one thing that I don't know how much you know about, but... I would love to know more about why slang is such a big thing in Australian culture than, say, American or Canadian. I think it's a big thing in British culture, so it's probably tied there to some degree. But I know that... I would say, from my experience, it's more of a thing in Australian culture. Yeah. But then I don't know about every aspect of British culture. But, but like, I've, I've experienced a lot more with Australians, like, on, on digs and things than I have with British people. And it's, it's a massively interesting thing. I, it might... I mean, you talked about the, and this is just me sort of guessing, I've got no idea, but you talked about the kind of thieves language and it, it might, the culture of kind of having ever-changing slang might, I mean, it might stem from something like that, like a sort of a need to have a kind of common Identity. language that, that, yeah, that that the in-group understands and the out-group doesn't understand, a kind of deliberate yeah. Um, well, I and I, I, you'll I'm notice Australians do like that. that. Australians will put on the accent a bit more, and they probably end up using slang more. Or, slang more. You're going to hear people as soon as I get to America or something. You're probably going to hear me say, hey, "G'day, how's it going?" A lot more than I would yeah, here, yeah. because it's kind of like, "Hey, I'm different. Know where I'm from." Any other Australians out there? Mm. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a sign of some sort of beacon. Mm.